I've entitled this morning's message, The Comfort of God, The Comfort of God. Now, we know in a fallen world that God's comfort is primarily spiritual. Put another way, God offers us emotional comfort. He allows us to go through physical trials with our bodies. He allows us to go through physical distress. But spiritual and emotional comfort is part of God's redemptive plan now. For those of us who are in Christ, we know that though our bodies are slowly decaying, that one day there will also be physical comfort in the resurrection, in the resurrection power when we are reunited with Christ in person. But the desire for comfort is natural. I want you to think about that. I think that most of us in here, if you're human and if you're natural, if you're normal, you desire comfort. You do desire emotional comfort, spiritual comfort. But even the desire for physical comfort, it's, God, it's by God's design. You see, we were created to live under God's, in God's presence, under God's reign, and we were created to live forever. We were created to experience his physical comfort and his spiritual comfort. But because of sin, because of sin, we're separated from the presence of God. And as a result of sin, you and I, we seek, we blindly seek comfort, both physical comfort and spiritual, emotional comfort from the things of this world. Now, we're continuing our series in Isaiah. If you haven't noticed, the themes in Isaiah are similar. Right? You have God who is holy and righteous and good, confronting his people, Judah. Judah is fallen. They're far from God. At times, you see the passages confronting the leaders of Judah. At other times, it speaks specifically to the people. Last week, we looked at the passage of Isaiah 6, where God's servant, Isaiah, got a glimpse of God who is big, sovereign, and holy, because Isaiah would need to go to speak to a people who would continue to reject God's message, and he needed the confidence that would be given to him because he saw an accurate view of God. And that accurate view of God gave him an accurate view of himself and others. Today we're in Isaiah chapter 25. The themes are similar, where God's people, they're going to experience great discomfort. Because of their sin, because they are far from God, they will experience the physical discomforts that come from the distress of being oppressed by foreign nations and foreign rulers. At the same time, spiritually speaking, they would continue to struggle, drawing near to the Lord. But there's always in Isaiah a remnant. There's always in Isaiah a people of God who long to follow the ways of the Lord. And when you look at Isaiah, the challenge for us as preachers and for you as Bible students is how do you locate the Christian, the closest thing to a Christ follower, in the book of Isaiah so that you can draw some application. And again, it's the remnant today. As you're hearing Isaiah 25 read to you, as you're looking at Isaiah 25 with your eyes and as you're taking in the words, I want you to envision yourself there. Christ has not been fully revealed to you yet. So your only hope is in this future promise of a king that's like David. One in the likeness of David that is promised to you that will come and deliver you from the nations. And deliver you 
the, into the kingdom of God. At the same time, you have the word of God spoken to you through the prophets. You have the word of God that came previous to Isaiah that tells you about the character of God that you hold on to. And if you're that person, where do you find comfort? Just think about that. You're trying to follow God, right? You are that remnant of God. You long for God, but everybody around you is seeking after the ways of this world. They're seeking after the comforts of this world. And soon those comforts would be taken away because soon invasion would come. But your brothers and sisters, your kinsmen, they have no idea. They're under the comforts of the world. And so where do you draw comfort? You have to look to God. You have to look to the promises of God. The idea that I want you to carry with you today is that God's comfort comes in a plan. God's comfort comes in trusting his plan. You have to remember that the Old Testament people of God, the death and resurrection of Christ was yet to be revealed. And so for them, it was trusting in the promises that would come. So when everything around you doesn't seem like or look like God's kingdom is active and realized, what hope do you have? You have to look to the sovereign plan of God. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. Today, we're going to speak to this idea that God's comfort, in particular, his spiritual and emotional comfort is tied to his powerful plan for our lives. I want to begin with sharing how the late great biblical counselor, David Paulison, one of my favorite, how he explains God's comfort. Now, his explanation of God's comfort, it applies to Christians, but it also applied to the remnants. It would also apply to the people of Isaiah's day who did trust in God, who did fear the Lord, who did have a heart that longed for one like David to take the throne. And Paulison explains... That the comfort of God, the emotional comfort of God, it's not like the comfort of when you're mourning and when you're in sorrow or when you're depressed and somebody puts their arm around you and comforts you. Now, that's pretty good. I think all of us, if we're honest, if we're not being macho, we would say, hey, there are constantly times in our lives where we need someone to put their arm around us, to pray for us, to walk with us. But God's comfort is so much deeper. Paulison explains that God himself calls you into the deep waters in your life. We have to see that when we experience both physical discomfort and emotional discomfort, that this is actually part of God's plan. It's part of God's plan to reveal to us and remind us that God gives us trials so that we will experience him. He gives us trials to remind us that, look, I'm here, Yahweh is saying. And when things are good, and when life is good, you are not going to naturally reach for me. But when things get hard, you're going to reach for me. And I'm going to show up for you in spiritual and emotional ways. And you're going to be reminded that I am real. So that when you die, by the time I take you, you will know for certain that you will see me at the resurrection. You see, God's good in that way. He, he prepares us so that in the moment when you die, you're, you know with confidence that when you go, you're going to see Christ. You're going to see the Lord. Because he's giving you trials all 
every step of the way. And every single time there's a trial, he shows up and he reminds you, my presence is with you. The world can't take care of you in this moment. It's not, it's not the comfort of this world that you can buy or purchase or acquire. No power, no position is going to get you this comfort. But instead, you've got to trust in my plan. And each time you trust in my plan, God is saying, figuratively, I'm going to remind you that I'm walking with you. This was true even for the Old Testament saints. And, and, and then Paulison explains that God sets a limit on our sorrows. He sets a limit on our sorrows. He allows us to experience emotional pain so that we'll reach for him. But he doesn't allow his saints to go into full despair. He shepherds us. He guides us. And when we realize, thirdly, that he's actively bringing good from our troubles, then our faith expands. You see, our faith, we exercise our faith. And one day, our faith will turn into sight. When we see, oh, Lord, you were the one walking with me. And in the context of distressing events, God actually changes us to become like him. Now, for the Old Testament saints, it was trusting in the promises of the kingdom to come, trusting in the promises that would point towards Christ. But for us as New Testament believers, we know that it's been revealed to us in Scripture that God transforms us to be more like Christ, and one day we will have our resurrection bodies just like Christ. Now, it's, I, I think it's important to set this before us before diving into the passage so that you can begin to see yourself, oh, Isaiah spoke about that, but we're reading Isaiah from the lens of a Christian viewpoint. We're reading this Old Testament prophet under the reign of the new covenant. So when we find comfort in God, it's not simply just a principle of moralism, but it's really Christocentric. That's what we're going to see. Now, Isaiah 25, the first thing we want to see in verses 1 to 5 is find comfort in God's plan. Find comfort in God's plan. And again, it's not just this principle of find comfort in God's plan and we're going to be okay. No, find comfort in God's plan that's realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what makes God's plan real to us. Notice in, first in verse 1, Isaiah begins by exalting the Lord. And we explained last week in Isaiah chapter 6 is that Isaiah already saw the Lord and the Lord is Jesus Christ. John 12 reveals that the Lord that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 is, in fact, Jesus Christ. And so for you and me, we can also read this, Oh, Jesus Christ, you are my God. You see how it's different for us as believers? Oh, Lord, Jesus Christ, who died in my place for my sin, you are my God. Not just this concept of a father in heaven. Not just the Holy Spirit who we think about. Not just this triune idea. But, oh, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, you are my God. You see how that's different for us? And it says, I will exalt you, Christ. I will praise your name. You see, that's the difference. The person writing this writes from a different vantage point than the Old Testament saint. In fact, Isaiah writes from the vantage point of a person who's seen Christ. You and I read this from the vantage point of a person who has a relationship with Christ if you're a believer. Oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise the name of Jesus Christ. For you have done wonderful things. 
the Old Testament reader listens to this. Oh, wonderful things. They're thinking of their history. God working through Moses, delivering them through the Exodus event. God showing up through various judges and fighting for them. God raising up David and establishing his people as a powerful kingdom. But that kingdom has fallen. But you and I, we read this and we say, yeah, we believe in all of those Old Testament stories as part of the history of the Bible. But not only that, when it says wonderful things, this is talking about the works of God, we can actually think of the crucifixion and the resurrection. We can think of our own salvation and the work that God has done in our lives. You have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful, and sure. You see, God's plans, not only do they point forward, but they look backwards. God's plans are not by mistake. God doesn't make a plan because he's adjusting the plan mid-course. God's plans are set in his character. God's character is eternal. God's character is eternal because he is eternal and he's infinite. God has always existed. There's never been a time in history where the God has not existed. And if God is eternal and infinite, then his plans belong to him. His plans rest and flow out of his character. That means his plans are old. Old does not mean bad. You know, we live in a world where old is bad. We want things that are new. You have to be old to make all things new. You understand that? You have no idea of what is new if you are not God. God continues to create and generate because he's the ancient of days. And so all of his plans, even your cancer, your disease, your emotional distress... All of it belongs to his plan of how he gives us these trials so that we look to him. Plans formed of old. These are sovereign plans. This, this verse, verse 1, I was tempted to preach the whole sermon on this verse. And then I was reminded, Hanley, you're not Spurgeon and you're not Martin Lloyd-Jones. You better preach seven more verses. But when you think about this, in verse 1, if we just preach the passage on verse 1, this would be a sermon on the sovereignty of God. The wonderful things of God flow out of his sovereign and infinite character. Plans, not new plans. Plans formed of old, faithful. And notice it says, sure, they're certain. His plans will come to pass. And you all know, different from Isaiah's audiences, that that plan... The pinnacle of that plan has been revealed to us. It was the plan to send Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And then Isaiah in verse 2, he zooms in to the earth from God's sovereign plan and speaks of the work of judgment upon the people of Isaiah's days, but also generally on the establishments of this world. Keep in mind the contrast. The believer of God is to find comfort in God and his plans, God's character, that he's going to fulfill his plans, the goodness of God. But the world, apart from God, finds hope, short-sighted hope, in what the world would see as stable and strong. But we know it's unstable. And so look at verse 2. It says, for you've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. Now, cities represent the center of civilization. Cities stand tall and proud. These were ancient times before suburbs were a thing. 
uh, cities were the pride of civilization. But the believer looks to the mountains. The believers looks, look to the clouds and the terrifying waves of the ocean. You see, you have a city. And if it's built near any body of water, you are reminded that behind the city, think of the imagery of the prophets. There's the mountains, majestic and grand. And to the other side, there's the terrifying deeps of the oceans. Even if you live in the deserts or in the Midwest, right, you, you're reminded of fields, vast fields and vast deserts. And then in the, in the center, there's a city, man-made ir irrigation. But surrounding you, deserts, fields, vast lands ready for the powerful winds and storms to come. You see, nature waits ready for the prompting of the Creator. But man says, oh, we got to pr protect ourselves from the elements, so we need to fortify our cities. We need buildings and structures. And then we need walls to protect ourselves from human sin. Human sin's a spiritual problem. But man tries to deal with human sin externally, building a fortified city. But the Lord can leave that city in ruin. And, it, and then in verse 2 it says the foreigner's palace. So this is speaking of the for, foreigner, the, the, the people who are not the people of God, the people that God desires to save, but the foreigner's palace is a city no more. Right? People found the powerful, the rich, the wealthy. They found security in these palaces. They found comfort in these palaces. The best the money could buy but it will never be rebuilt if God desires to bring it down. You see the picture? Why is it that insurance companies, insurance companies, they refer to natural disasters as acts of God? Any state farm agents in here? All state? Not sponsoring anyone or saying we should be sponsored, but right when... when there are certain natural disasters that are called acts of God. But I didn't know that the insurance commission believed in God. But if it saves them money, they will claim that they believe in God. So they say, acts of God. That was an act of God. You see, look at the point I'm trying to make. Solid structures that engineers built are good. You go through safety protocol, but it can't protect you from the worst of natural disasters. And then you're saying, well, I got insurance. <laughs> if it's an act of God, even the insurance might not fully come through for you. You see, whatever we want to find our comfort in, whatever we want, the, the security, the safety. I hope you have insurance for this. Sorry, I think this just fell off my speaker. I mean, my microphone. Whatever we want to protect ourselves from, okay, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if the Lord says, I'm going to allow this natural disaster to come, it's going to come. It's going to lay the best that the world has to build into ruins. Now, you look at verse 3, it says, therefore, you see, when God takes everything away from the strong in this world, they begin to pay attention to God. It says, therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. This speaks about a future time where strong peoples, the powerful, 
those who typically would oppress God's people, that some of them will have their hearts turned. Some of them, this will be in a time where because Christ returns and there's judgment, they will glorify God. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. I want you to notice in verses 3 to 5 that there's a contrast. That the people of the world who don't know God, they're they're described as strong people, as ruthless people. Ruthless here does not mean Boaz before he met Ruth. That's not what ruthless means in the Old Testament. (laughs) Thanks for your laugh. Ruthless, I worked hard on that. <laughs> ruthless means ruthless means people who use their position and their power and their resources to oppress the weak. That's what ruthless means. Right? Ruthless nations will fear you. But then God's people are described as the poor, the needy in distress. Because once God allowed the foreign nations to invade and oppress His people, even the most powerful in Israel, among Judah. Yes, some of them got into positions of dignitary positions, but for the most part, they were no longer among the elite. They were poor. They were distressed. But God hears the cry of the remnant and his people. But he says this, God is not a stronghold, right? God's not a stronghold for the powerful in this world. But it says, you have been a stronghold to the poor. A stronghold, look at repeated, a source of comfort and protection to the needy in his distress. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. You see the two extremes? During ancient Near Eastern times in the Middle Eastern province and in that area, these were the two extremes of the weather patterns. There would be these fierce, sudden storms that you would have to find shelter Immediately. And then there was the scorching heat, the desert heat, and you would need to find shade. Both pictures of needing comfort and shelter. But God is the shelter for the poor and those in distress. For the breath of the ruthless, you see in contrast, is like a storm against a wall. It's like a storm pounding against a wall. The wall's strong. The storm just pounds against that wall. Because the people on the other side of the wall have shelter from that wall. Right? That's what God provides. Is that the ruthless are coming against the poor of Judah. Against the, the needy. And God is like that wall. Guarding them from the breath of the re- ruthless. And then in verse 5. It says, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud so the song of the ruthless is put down. You see, for God's people of the Old Testament, they would face the invasions and they would experience this distress. But as the church, the people of God, we experience the personal comfort of God through a relationship with Christ. That's where Christ visits us. He reminds us that he's walking with us. The Holy Spirit dwells with us. And and in Christ, not only do we experience salvation, but we experience transformation. Right? So that's God's comfort. God's comfort is trusting in his plan. And as Christians, we receive the heart and soul of his plan, which is Jesus Christ. But what we see in Isaiah that's applicable to the Old Testament saints and us in the New Testament is not only finding comfort in God's plan, which is fully realized in Christ, but we also find 
comfort in God's power. This is a very different type of power. This is a power that can overcome the fear of death. Now, I know there's some of you in here who might have those moments where you say, I'm not afraid to die. Now, let's get real. Look in the mirror. I I don't think we should be sitting there saying, I fear death. Because if you're a Christian, you should have confidence in the resurrection of Christ and that you will be with God in eternity. But let's not be proud. Let's not be arrogant. Let's all admit that all of us should have a healthy fear of death. Meaning, you need to prepare for death. I know some of you guys are like, why is he talking about death? I'm 25 years old. Okay. But your body reminds you every single day that you're dying. And there's unforeseen events that can happen to your life where death can come. I think it's healthy for you to prepare your heart to go through the motions of what it would mean to go through loss. Right? You have to prepare. What would it mean if you lost your loved ones? How would you process that? Are you ready for that? What happens if you receive notice that you have a terminal disease? Have you prepared yourself for that? And one day you need to prepare yourself to meet the Lord. Even though you say, I'm not afraid to die because I'm going to see Jesus. I think you exit the moment of pride where you're just speaking out of your mouth and say, okay, no, in reality, are you ready? Are you ready? You see, for the believer, for the believer, and this has biblical warmth because the Apostle Paul's theology of his, how he counsels people through facing death, where do you think he gets his theology from? Not just the resurrection, but from Isaiah chapter 25. Okay, I'm going to show you that. That St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the New Testament, builds his theology of biblical counseling for people facing death on Isaiah chapter 25. Okay, and I'm going to show you that. Okay, so we find comfort in God's plan, but we also find comfort in God's power. Here we go. Verse 6. Verses 6 6 to 8 speak specifically on God's power over death. And it says this in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food uh, full of marrow, and aged wine well-refined. All right, so this feast is talking about a future time. It describes this uh, inaugural banquet. So if you're, if, you're during, if you're living during the Old Testament times, uh, whenever a new king was crowned in the ancient new, Near Eastern world, there would be an inaugural banquet. This was customary during those times. But here it's the Lord. It's not just any earthly king. And it's the Lord not just sitting on any earthly throne, but he's on this holy mountain of Zion. And all the peoples, this is not just Judah, but all the peoples of the nations will come and notice the emphasis on what they will feast on. They will feast on rich food. You see the contrast? The contrast is in the previous verses, you have the ruthless, the rich, the wealthy. 
But God's people were described as poor, in distress, and needy. But here, God's people in the end times are described as people who are, who are feasting on the best that God prepares. God, God's going to take the best of this world. He's going to take the, the wine from the proud, the wine from the rich and wealthy, and he's going to give it to his poor people. He's going to take the food off the tables of these cities and these palaces that have been laid to ruin by God, and he's going to give it to his people in distress. I mean, this is amazing how it's described. The rich food, now don't get hungry now. It's not 12 o'clock yet. The rich food full of marrow speaks of the choice parts, the fattest parts of the meat. And these are parts sacrificed to the Lord among Israel. But this is the best. And notice twice, two times, not once, two times it talks about wine. And it says a feast of well-aged wine. And then it, it says again of, of aged wine, well-refined. I just had to look up what is well-aged wine in the Hebrew. It speaks of wine, and I know... I don't really understand the fermentation process. Some of you do better. I just know that there's good glasses of wine that tastes good, and there's two buck chuck, right? But aged wine, well-refined, it speaks of wine that is strengthened because, because they leave the dregs. What does that even mean? So I had to look up that. It means the sediment. They leave the sediment in the wine after the fermentation process, when the aged wine is strained for drinking, it's strong and good. Now, if this were a Presbyterian church, I'd hear 500 amens. Okay, but we're Baptists. I understand that. So you guys are all quiet. But God's basically trying to say that he's taking the best of the world and giving to his people, giving it to his people who are poor and under distress. God prepares a banquet for his people where he gives them the best. And then in verse 7, it says, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. And you know what he's talking about? Death. Because everybody knows that death is coming. Everyone fears death. Right? The covering that is cast over all the peoples. The veil that is spread over all the nations. Now here's the picture I want you to see. So here's God's people. And they're coming to this banquet where you have the best meats. And you have the best well-aged wine. And they're coming to celebrate with God. Yet their veils, there are veils over their faces. And these are veils that symbolize death. That, that even though there's this banquet being prepared for them, there's still a problem. Death. That's the picture that Isaiah is painting. You have people coming to this wonderful banquet prepared by God. But there's still the problem of death and we're in Isaiah New Testament believers, where's the hope? Who's the hope? What's his name? Jesus Christ. Oh, you got to get to verse 8. You got to get to verse 8. Number 8, Kobe Bryant's original number. Verse 8, nothing holy about number 8. Look what happens in verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. Who's that talking about? What's his name, beloved? Come on now, Baptist. You guys can talk to me too. What's his name? 
Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces. So people come into this banquet. They're coming. They got veils over their faces. Even though there's this banquet prepared for them. And it says the Lord will wipe away. And I, I try to look up the commentaries. And one commentator says it describes this tender picture of a mom wiping the tears away from her child. That, that, that's the picture of the Lord God wiping away the sorrow of, of what happens when you lose your loved ones. And you're sorrowful and you're crying. And the Lord is just wiping it away because there's no more death. Because he's swallowed up death. And then I love where you see the gospel right here in verse 8. It says, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. All the earth he's going to take away the reproach. For the Lord has spoken. You know what the reproach is? The word reproach in the English language means disapproval. I mean, that's one simple way to describe it. And God shows his disapproval towards sin. And so what this means when it says he's going to take away the reproach of his people, it's saying he's going to take away the consequences of sin. He's going to take away that disapproval because we've sinned. He's going to basically deal with sin. You see, he deals with the physical problem of swallowing up death. And then he deals with the spiritual problem of spiritual death so that we as believers can sit at that table and enjoy the best that God has to offer to his people who are poor in spirit because they realize that all the things in this world could not buy them what they really need, the comfort of God. Now, I will say this, okay? I will say this. This text is not saying that only the poor people are believers. And it is not saying that if you're rich, you cannot believe. Because here's the thing. If you're sitting in this room today, even if you have some financial struggles, in comparison to the global scale, they would look at us as rich. When you compare us today to the ancient times, we would be considered among the rich. But naturally... Those who don't have a lot of money and they don't have power and they don't have as much insurance, when they get sick, it is more natural for them to reach for spiritual things because they don't have some of the securities that you and I might have. It is easier for the poor who realize I don't have a lot, I can't buy comfort, even if I work hard, Right back in Israel's day, I'm, I'm, I'm under foreign oppression, so I can't even get there, even if I wanted to. It's easier for that person. And those people live globally, around the world, believers. It's naturally easy for them to reach directly for God. So that is convicting for us. Is that sometimes it is our comfort. It is our wealth. It is what we have that keeps us from quickly reaching for God. But this passage is not saying that if you're rich, you can't be a believer. And it's not saying that only the poor are believers. But God does need every single person who wants to come to his table to be poor in spirit. 
we do need to say that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to pay for the reproach of our sin. You see? There's nothing we can do that can overcome this problem that we're physically dying and that we're spiritually dead. Only through the Lord can we come to that table. Only through the Lord. Only the Lord can remove the reproach of his people. It says, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. That phrase, the Lord has spoken, just means this is going to happen. Because the word of God is the word of God. And the word of God is certain and sure. God will put death to death. God will destroy death. That is a beautiful picture. And so the Apostle Paul, understanding his Old Testament theology, borrowed from Isaiah to give us a theology for how to counsel our souls and how to counsel others through death. Here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he quotes from Isaiah 25, verse 8. He says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. Our bodies are perishing. We must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Man, it sounds like some weird movie, Paul. Immortal! You know, what are you talking about? Now, the Christian does not laugh. You know, if, if someone who's never been to church, which if, if that's you, we love you and we want you to understand what this means. Right? If, if you're not a believer and you would actually come to a church like ours, just thank you. I want you to understand that you're mortal. We all recognize that. That you're going to die. But we were created for immortality. As funny as that might sound. We were created to live eternally, spiritually. That's what he's speaking on. Right? He's saying we must put on immortality. He's talking about a resurrection body, but he's also talking about spiritually, being reconnected to God to live forever, spiritually speaking. Our souls are eternal. Our souls will either face eternal judgment or experience eternal praise and worship, eternal joy in heaven with Christ. And look at the sound of the gospel. They write songs about this. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. You see what Paul's doing? He's quoting Isaiah 25 for Christians. He's saying Isaiah 25 was speaking about what Christ would bring and deliver us from. It says death is swallowed up in victory. Whose victory? What's his name? Jesus. Oh, death, where is your victory? Defeated because of? What's his name? Jesus. Oh, death, where is your sting? Death gives us a sting, but it doesn't kill us because of? Jesus. You see, this is like a song. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then he, you know how Paul answers his own questions? He says, the sting of death is sin. See, he turns the physical into a spiritual. You see that? He does it. He says, you guys see it as a physical problem. And so you're trying to protect yourself physically. Fortified cities. Palaces. You see, Paul understood 
the theology of Isaiah, right? But God's going to lay it all to ruin. But for the New Testament believer, they might not have these benefits. They may be persecuted. They may be being put to death. The, the sting of death is sin. It's a spiritual problem. Spiritual death is a deeper issue. But the power of sin, but the, and the power of sin is the law because the law tells you how sinful you are, but the law does not offer the solution. The law tells you that you are condemned. The law tells me that I'm a sinner, but does not offer me the gospel. But thanks be to God in Pauline likeness, right, of how he writes. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord. What's his name? Jesus Christ. My goodness. You see, Paul takes Isaiah 25 and he completes the picture. He said, Isaiah had no idea, but he was speaking about what would only be fulfilled through victory in Jesus Christ. You see, in Revelation chapter 7, this is the Apostle John. Revelation chapter 7, Isaiah 25 is beautiful. He writes that Isaiah 25 is going to be fully realized after the return of Christ. And here's what we see in Revelation 7, 17. It says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Because there's no more death. You see, commentators agree that this reference here, in Revelation 7, verse 17, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He's taking it. John's taking it from Isaiah chapter 25. So John's theology of overcoming death, Paul's theology of overcoming death, and it being a spiritual reality, it comes from Isaiah 25. What a powerful passage. Here's the big idea. I'll give you some application. The big idea is that we must find comfort in God's powerful plan that will be accomplished through Christ. I put the will be because of the future realization that's going to come after he returns. But we begin to experience the fruits of Jesus' death and resurrection now. We must find comfort, not in the things of this world, not in what the world offers us, but we must find comfort in God's powerful plan that will be accomplished through Christ. It's only through Christ. My prayer this morning is that you would not walk out of here saying, I got the plan. I'm all focused on the plan. God is sovereign. I got my insurance plan. No. If you walk out of there, you're going to have the plan. You're going to have the plan like, like your insurance card, right? That's most of you put it on your phone like, oh, I'm going through emotional pain. But I got the plan. I got the plan. The plan says here I got the deductible. I got the deductible. Pray five times and God's going to send me a biblical counselor. Like a good neighbor, my biblical counselor is there. You know? No. You know, that, that's, that's not how it works, right? I hope you walk out of here this morning not with the plan, but with the fulfillment of the plan. I hope you walk out of here with Christ. I hope that because of Isaiah 25, that you love Christ more this morning, that you treasure Christ more, that you go home and you pray directly and you say, Christ is my life. Christ is my hope. Christ is the hymn of heaven, both the hymn and the hymn. 
Christ is the hymn of heaven. It is because of Christ you trust in the promises of God. But at the center of the promise is Christ, not the promises of this world. God's plan is the fulfillment of his promises, which is centered in Christ. The world offers you tons of plans. Here's a dieting plan. We should take care of our bodies. Here's a health plan. Here's an insurance plan. Here's a plan for retirement. All of those things are part of prudence and wisdom, which I think we need to apply. But at the end of the day, those plans can only go so far. They cannot bring you the comfort that God designed for you and me to have, which can only come through Christ. And then then here's this. We live in a world of uncertainty. But we must find comfort in the certainty of God's plan, which comes through Christ. I want to end with this quote from J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer, the late great theologian, he said this, quote, There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me. That's not self-centeredness. That's just he's omniscient. He's sovereign. He's good. He's loving. This is his character. God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over for my good. End quote. There's unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. You say, God, I'm sinful. Yeah, he knows your sin because he's watching. (laughs) But he also loves you and he's good. This is part of his character. You understand that? You're like, God... I can't believe that you would give me attention. It's not this self-centeredness of, oh, I get all of God's attention. But it's the fact that because he's God and because he's good and because he's a God of comfort and because he's omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing, and because he's omnipresent, meaning his presence is everywhere, by his nature, he's constantly taking knowledge of you in love and watching over you. And he's watching you. Can I just sit here for a moment? I don't know how to play this thing. I'm, you know, but and, and you're, he's sitting there and, he, and you're like this. And you know that he sees that you're sitting there in pain? He sees that you're physically in pain? He sees that you're emotionally distressed? He sees that you're being tempted by the ways of the world? You you understand that he sees you. He's the God that we talked about last week of Isaiah 6, and he sees you. And he has a plan. And he's taking knowledge of you in love. And he sees the trial that he's sent you as well. And he sees that he's going to use that trial to bring your attention and your gaze back upon him, back towards his throne. And he's doing all of that, watching over you for his, for your good and for his glory. That is our God. That's the comfort of God. The comfort of God is not a comfort that's external of him. The comfort of God is God himself. The comfort of God is that God is good. See, that's your God. The comfort of God is God himself. God's comfort is himself. He's watching over you. He's loving you. He knows everything you're going through. He knows your sin, and he's given you a solution for that sin in Jesus Christ. That's the comfort of God. The comfort of God is God himself. 
And through a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can have God. The comfort of God is God. If you don't know Christ this morning, Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago, died on the cross, rose again on the first Easter morning. And if you confess that you're a sinner and that you can't deal with the reproach of your sin, and if you turn your heart to him and say, Lord, I repent, will you make me whole? He doesn't give you comfort. He gives you himself. He gives you Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning for comfort. Help us to realize that your comfort is you. You've given us yourself in the person and work of Christ. Lord, I pray this morning that we would not walk out of here finding confidence in just your plan and your power, but we would find confidence in Christ, that we would find comfort in Christ. Help us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that Christ would be the song of our souls and that Christ would shepherd and guide us as we live in this world for you. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.